if you want to join me in Matthew chapter 9 this evening. And if I can draw your attention actually to verse 10. And let me just read to you verse 10 down through verse 13. Matthew 9 and verse 10. It says, Now what happened is Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, this evening I want to begin our study together by saying this. If you tonight looking around this room or maybe coming here on a regular occasion for church services, feel like that you are the absolute most needy person. Honestly, you may be the most blessed person in the entire church. Jesus shows us in this passage that it is essential really to fully experience all that he intends for us and the reason he came to come to a place where we honestly realize the depth of the own need in our lives. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, there's a blessing, Jesus says, when a person, a human being, comes to the place where they really begin to understand the own poverty of their spiritual condition, that they realize as a person that they are completely bankrupt. Of, of anything good, anything worthwhile, anything meritorious, anything that they could contribute or bring to the table, that they realize that they are an absolute bankruptcy in regards to who they are as a person before God, and their complete need is to receive from God his help, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his love, all those things. And this little uh, vignette of a, of a passage of scripture kind of, I think, sets that reality here in front of us. It comes to us opening in sort of this dinner scene we see taking place here that Jesus was present at directly after the calling of Matthew, who is actually the gospel writer that we're reading the account from here, often referred to as Levi in other accounts, which probably indicates to us that not only that was his name, but potentially even the tribe that he was from. Maybe he was from the tribe of Levi. He was raised in a religious household. But yet we find this man who probably had a very religious upbringing and certainly had a deep knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures because Matthew's gospel, you notice, you find more than Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew continuously, more than any other gospel writers, makes references and quotations from the Old Testament saying that this happened to fulfill this scripture. And he'll say, well, this happened for it is written. And Matthew, more than any of the other writers, with a very scholarly way, 
is constantly referencing the Old Testament to support the things about Jesus' life or his ministry or his miracles or his teachings or the statements that he would make. So Matthew certainly had a knowledge of the word of God. Very likely, maybe he was even from the tribe of Levi. We know that they were the family uh, tribe that were the uh, individuals who served together with the priesthood uh, as we've been studying on Wednesday evenings in our time together there uh, but yet Matthew apparently at some point probably became a little disillusioned with formal religion uh, and kind of saw some of the cracks and the flaws of the religious formality that existed and and he kind of became a little disillusioned with the religious system as a result of that he went completely the opposite direction he became what any Jewish uh, mother's nightmare would be, he became a Jewish tax collector. No Jewish mother would ever say, my son's a tax collector. Uh, I mean, it just you would that would be the absolute worst. I mean, you may say that with tears in your eyes and weeping in humiliation and shame because Romans are the ones who levy taxes upon the Jews and they would hire Jews to work for them. You actually would bid for a tax booth. Uh, and depending upon who was the highest bidder, you would get that tax booth. And then you had a certain quota that you would collect as a tax collector. And then, which of course was an unknown number, anything you could then extort beyond that from the people you collected taxes from, well, that was your income. So you had to be good at things like being greedy a liar, a cheat, a deceiver. If you were good at those things, then you were a successful tax collector. It was a very lucrative business, but it was something that everyone hated and despised because let's be honest, nobody likes to pay taxes, number one. And number two, when you realize that you're probably being ripped off in the process as the system worked in that day, and then to make it worse, you're actually receiving that from one of your own Jewish brethren who seemed as someone who was a complete Benedict Arnold who had turned against his own nation, was collecting taxes from his own people. But yet it tells us in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus walking along past, and it says, verse 9, that he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew arose and followed him. So look, it doesn't say that Jesus sees this despicable individual. From, from all accounts, in everybody else's estimation, that's what this guy was. He was despicable. Someone who had this mark in that society would be the person with the scarlet letter, the one who everybody would look at and say, that person disgusts me. They disgust me. They're despicable. They are absolutely the lowest of low because of what they do and what they've done. And, and look what it says. It says that Jesus saw a man. Jesus just saw a man. He saw a man who had deep need. He saw a man who was just as much in need of his love and forgiveness as everyone else. And Jesus, it says, saw a man. He saw a heart. He saw a fractured individual who had just as much need as every other breathing human being on the planet from the Garden of Eden. And Jesus said to him, hey, you, who everybody else thinks is despicable, how about you come follow me? How about you come let me lead your life and take control of your life and do something with your life? And apparently Jesus did because uh, you're reading the account of one of the gospel writers of that 
despicable man at one point who chose to follow Jesus and Jesus revolutionized his life and more than that he made him a pretty useful individual he actually recorded one of the four gospels that we have under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so Jesus calls him Luke's account tells us that he leaves everything he just gets up and follows him so something about the authoritative voice of Jesus just two words imagine that two words Jesus looks at him he says follow me and something about the presence of Jesus recognizing who Jesus was maybe he had been kind of scanning and checking Jesus out we don't know that's possible but he saw something so authentic so real in Jesus so different from just organized religious structure that when Jesus said two words to him in a very personal direct way hey you follow me just follow me I'm not asking you to do this or clean your act up or get just follow me and it says that he immediately responds to that. And you know, that is genuinely really a beautiful picture of exactly what conversion is. It's not a perfect presentation of the gospel. It's not that you get to track with the four spiritual laws and understand every point of it theologically and doctrinally. It's that you realize your need, you recognize who Jesus is, and you know that you heard the voice of Jesus say to you, follow me. In such a way whereby you leave behind whatever may hold you back and you get up and you follow him and you arise and you embrace the offer and you begin to follow Jesus. Now, Jesus is smart. He, he's a very good steward. He realizes not only can I get Matthew in this process, but because that guy's so despicable, he knows a lot of other despicables. If you understand what I mean, he realizes Matthew's a man of influence and, and if, if I can get Matthew to follow me, not only do I get Matthew in the process, but this guy knows a lot of other rotten, despicable people. So he probably says, hey, Matthew, do you know some other, you know, scumbags, lowlifes, rotten, wretched people? I mean, you know, the kind that everybody would say is like you. Oh, I know lots of people like that. Sure. I mean, what do you want? You know, do you want other tax collectors, prostitutes? What, what do you want me to get? That's my circle. I know plenty of people like that. And that's probably why verse 10, it says, now what happened there as Jesus sat at the table in the house, and the other accounts tell us this is actually Matthew's house, that behold, look now, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him, that's Jesus, and his disciples. So Matthew sort of throws this uh, you know, celebration party. He wants to announce his testimony. He's not ashamed that he decided to follow Jesus. You could tell when somebody's truly converted because this is the case. He's not trying to hide his calling or the fact that he's followed Jesus. He, he wants to introduce other people to Jesus. He says, hey, come over to my house and listen to what Jesus would have to say. Let me tell you what he's done in my life. And, and, and so now there's sort of this special banquet that takes place. It says there are many, so not just a few, but a large group of tax collectors and sinners just categorizing every other person uh, who would go with that category there, all the other theoretical ideas you could fill in. And they sit down with Jesus and his disciples. They're having a dinner. And verse 11 says, and when the Pharisees saw it. Now, somehow the Pharisees get into the dinner here, whether the bouncers weren't doing a good job that evening and they kind of slipped their way through there or whether the Pharisees are looking in the windows in their kind of self-righteousness, you know, scorning at what Jesus was doing. They often were very angry and upset with Jesus because he befriended 
sinners and and those who were needy people and recognized as those who were sort of immoral in that day interesting how they felt very comfortable with jesus and strictly religious people very religious lifestyled individuals they were always uneasy with jesus i always find that interesting people who were very religious were uneasy and always upset and, and questioning Jesus and troubling Jesus and his work and people who just were in great need and knew their condition, sinners and immoral people who are very comfortable around Jesus. Uh, and, and here there's, now again, Jesus is not spending time with them to powwow with them and to, you know, to, to just have fellowship and enjoy their immoral company. That's not the case here. Jesus is interacting with them to win them, to influence them. And there's a very big difference. Again, the Bible says bad company corrupts good character. And we should never be hanging out with, in a sense, in our society, the, the tax collectors and the, you know, those who would fall into those type of categories we would envision of immoral and ungodly and, and living very wicked lifestyles for the sake of finding fellowship with them. But we should be willing to not insulate ourselves and interact with those people in such a way that we want to win them to Christ. And that therefore we befriend them and we're willing to rub shoulders and interact with them because we want to see them brought to Christ. Now, the, the Pharisees, when they see this, are very bothered by it. Verse 11, you can tell there. And notice, though, they never have the courage to talk to Jesus directly. They always trouble his disciples. So then this is how critical people are. They never go to the source. They complain to other people. Why is he doing that? Why, why is she doing this? So they go to the disciples to complain about Jesus. This is what critics do. So they go and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So as we've talked about before, keep in mind, the struggle with this is in that day, unlike today's day and age, eating was viewed as a completely different thing. You know, today we... You know, my, my wife is forever trying so hard to make sure we eat dinner together. She's very wonderful in that. She values time eating dinner together and sitting down at the table together. And you know how that is in life. A lot of times we put very little you know, importance upon you know, family meals and sitting down to eat together. We're, instead, we're you know, shoving McDonald's down our face on the way to this sports game or that. Or we're coming home from work at different times. And so, but in that day, eating was considered as a real deeply intimate thing. And that was because of the viewpoint they had and as well the way that they ate they didn't eat with utensils and forks and knives and spoons and separate dishes and all that the way we do today typically there was a a, a, a portion of, of pita bread in the in the middle of a table as they'd be reclining around it and then there were different types of uh, sauces and you know dips and things like that that they would then just tear off a piece of bread and they would dip it into a bowl and just put it into their mouth and there were none of the Kosher rules today of you know, you know double dipping and they just they just ate and and you know back and forth and so because of that there was an awareness you know okay I'm you know let's be real we're sharing germs here you know you're dipping in the same bowl I am putting it in your mouth and and at the same time they were also recognizing that the same source of nourishment that's giving life and health to your body is also giving life and health to my body and therefore in a sense we're assimilating the same thing and in a very intimate way where we're having you know in a sense you know interaction with one another in a very intimate way your germs and my germs so they saw that as a very unifying experience what has nourished you is nourishing me so in a sense mystically in their mind we're like becoming one in a sense 
We're sharing of all the same things. So they viewed eating as an extremely intimate thing. That's why when you read the Bible, you see this reality of you know, Jews not wanting to eat with Gentiles or the Pharisees getting upset with Jesus when he ate with certain people because in their mind, it wasn't just they were sharing a meal. With them. You're, you're becoming one with them. You're, you're becoming closely joined and connected with them. And in their mind, that just didn't seem appropriate. It bothered them that Jesus would have such close contact with those who were perceived as so evil and ungodly in their perspective. So they're greatly upset. So why does your teacher do this? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, look, it says, when Jesus heard that. So Jesus hears what they're saying when they're asking. Jesus heard that and he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus at this point now speaks up here and he addresses their attitude of heart. And at the same time, he lays out for us some really beautiful spiritual principles about himself about our lives and our condition, he instantly comes to this way of reflecting upon what's going on by saying an answer to what they were asking. Verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The idea is it's sick people who seek out the help of a physician. I mean, that's common sense. You know, I don't think anybody typically you know, regularly, purposely goes to a doctor. Well, I guess you shouldn't say that. I understand we have well checkups nowadays, but let's pretend we're in ancient Israel. <laughs> we're, not, we're not in American medicine here. Again, it was costly to go to a physician. It was difficult to find and access a physician in many ancient cultures. And uh, again, so because of that, you didn't go to a doctor unless you really needed to go to a doctor. Unless you recognized you had a genuine need, you understood your condition. It was sick people who would seek out the help of a physician. And physicians only give assistance to people who need and who want their help. A physician is going to assist those who realize they have a condition and they want help. They recognize that they have a need. Now, what Jesus is doing here, understand, is he's portraying himself as a physician and he's portraying people as patients. Now, this is a beautiful sort of metaphorical picture here, but Jesus portraying himself as a great physician, one who brings healing and health and restoration, and he pictures human beings as needy patients. And so Jesus says, look, you need to realize those who are well, if you think that you're fine, well, then you don't need a physician. Physicians don't help people who are okay and healthy or don't think that they have any need. He says physicians go to those who are sick. They help those who realize that they have a need in their life. And that's Jesus's idea here in relation to spiritual matters. He's portraying this reality that we are all spiritually sick. We're all spiritually sick. Again, for starters, we all have a terminal illness. Everybody has the exact same cancerous terminal illness that will kill and destroy every one of us, and that's the plague of sin. We were born with that terminal illness, and, and sin, like a cancerous 
you know, disease within us, it just gradually will take over our lives and destroy and defile more and more. And ultimately, it will be terminal in its consequence. It will be eternal in its consequence if it's not remedied and resolved by Jesus. So we all have that same terminal illness every one of us and then on top of that if we just you know think of how that plays out sometimes too is it not true we we kind of then get infected symptomatically with different sinful conditions maybe some life dominating habit or some particular area of sin that becomes a a real struggle for you and on occasions we find ourselves going through different seasons in our life where maybe we find symptomatically that we're kind of being snagged in certain areas maybe it's you know anger or maybe it's pride or lying or lust or, or 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 you know speaking in ways that we shouldn't or whatever it may be and we find ourselves at times struggling with different areas of sin and, and wrestling with conditions and, and that condition plagues us and it's symptomatic and then we have at times periodic struggles as it pertains to remaining healthy and we're, we're kind of struggling with staying healthy in our spiritual life. And because of this, it's a beautiful analogy of how really all of us are needy spiritually. We're all sick spiritually. We're all needy spiritually. We're all struggling to maintain health spiritually. And on our own, if left to ourselves, we'd be in a really bad place. Our condition will just deteriorate. But the wonderful thing is that there is a great physician who has come to help us and who wants to help us and initiates trying to eradicate and remove sin from our life to forgive us and give us the eternal life through the blood of Jesus Christ to remove that cancerous terminal condition of sin and the power of Jesus to continue to help us with the conditions and the ongoing struggles with sin. And when we fail and struggle, the continual application to our conscience of the reminder of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus where the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that when we struggle we can confess and be reminded again of the cleansing removing power of Jesus to keep our conscience in a healthy place before God so Jesus creates this picture and he then says verse 13 to the religious leaders and I find this very beautiful he says to them but go and learn what this means I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This to me is an awesome statement there. Jesus says to these religious leaders who were supposed to be verily, uh, very spiritually astute, they were supposed to know the word of God well, so they claimed and be very aware of the heart and the ways of God, and yet they're so off track. So Jesus says to them, listen, go. You need to go and learn what this means. And he quotes here from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, and what he in essence is saying here to them is this, you need to go and learn the heart of God. You need to go learn the heart of God. You don't know God's heart. So he says, go and learn the heart of God because this, he says, is the heart of God that God desires mercy not sacrifice. Now he quotes from Hosea 6 verse 6, the whole verse says this, God declares, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God or just knowing God more than burnt offerings, offering things to God. Now the story of Hosea chapter 6 and really the whole book of Hosea 
is this beautiful way in which God conveys to the prophet Hosea what it means to know God's heart. He tells the prophet Hosea to go and marry this woman who was a harlot named Gomer. And he says, I want you to go and take her as a wife. Now, she already had a very shady, defiled background to begin with. But he says, I want you to go and marry her. So by faith, he obeys the Lord. He takes to himself this this harlot of a wife and he loves her and and he accepts her where she's at and he embraces her and treats her well and, and gives her his heart completely. And then after that, then she then goes out a whoring again and goes back to her prostitution trade and defiles the marriage and abandons him and betrays uh, Hosea as, as, a, as a husband and breaks his heart into pieces. And then God says to Hosea, Hosea, I want you to go now because she's on the slave block once again because she's entrapped and ensnared. I want you to go down to the public square and I want you to pay and buy her back from the filthy prostitution trade that she's got her. And I want you to go pay money and buy her back and take her back and love her again and embrace her again. And Hosea does that. And what God is doing in the process is saying, Hosea, now you understand my heart. Because Hosea, Gomer, your wife, who's gone away like a harlot and betrayed you and abandoned you and and broken your heart, he says, that's what my people Israel are like. They've turned away from me and then I draw them back to me and then they turn away from me again and they go and prostitute themselves after other gods and they betray me and break my heart and I continue to love them and love them. And he says, Jose, now you understand my heart. And now that you understand my heart, now you can speak on my behalf. Now you can represent me better because you understand what I experience between myself and my people whom I love. And it's in the midst of that that we get Hosea chapter 6 where God is calling the people through Hosea to return and God saying to them return to me even though you've backslidden he says even though I've had to allow your life to suffer and you've torn the Lord says return I'll heal you I'll accept you back and it's in the midst of that that God declares Hosea 6 6 for I desire mercy and not sacrifice And what the heart of God was saying to his people is very simply this, is that the Lord desires mercy for people over and above sacrifice from people. Let me say that again. The Lord desires mercy for people, that he wants to give mercy for people way more than he wants to extract sacrifices from people. And this to me is a critical understanding because a lot of times in our mentality, we think that the primary and foremost thing that God desires from us is a little more sacrifice. That God wants more sacrifice, more religious activity, and and God wants us to, to, to give to him more. That God's always looking to get something from us. And that's the way to get him happy or to make him happy or to make amends for when we fail or our past shortcomings. And we're always thinking somehow... But listen, what are we trying to do? Atone for our failures? Isn't that a little bit of an affront to God? Because didn't Jesus go through all he went through to atone perfectly, completely, once for all, for all my failures? So see, when I begin to think that what God wants from me is more sacrifices and that I have to impress God with how committed I am, and some of that stems from the arrogancy in our own hearts of wanting to impress 
with other people how spiritual we are, how dedicated we are to our devotions or you know, how committed we are to church or how many people we witness to or how much ministry we do. And, and we think somehow we have to impress God with our dedication and devotion and our spirituality in such a way that, that, that that's something that God's seeking to get from us. And God says, well, you're inverting things. I'm not looking to demand and get things from you. My primary desire is to be merciful to you in your failures and that you and I would come to a place where we recognize our neediness and appreciatively receive his mercy and receive his mercy in such a way where we realize, look, I see my true condition. I understand, God, that you are the only answer. And there's nothing that I can do to atone for what an idiot I was before I was saved. Oh, but if you only knew what I did, man. Listen, are you going to perpetually live as a victim your whole life? Having a pity party of what a scumbag you were before you were saved? Join the crowd. You're in Levi's dinner. Everybody was like that. Or my well, but you don't understand. But I back. I've, since I came to Christ, I backslid and I did this and this. Well, I understand that. But every single failure, shortcoming, weakness, wrongdoing, selfish act—that was all pinned to the cross once for all. You don't have to listen. If out of love and gratitude you want to serve Jesus, praise the Lord. But don't think that you're atoning to Jesus or atoning to God somehow by all the sacrifices or things you do or the diligence and duty and somehow that's impressing or winning favor back with God. God says, no, what I want is this. I want you to go and learn my heart. Go and learn my heart for yourself and then the way that we'll treat others to recognize and understand this, the great mercy of God the psalmist says this in Psalm 83 or excuse me Psalm 86 verse 3 to 5 be merciful to me O Lord for I cry to you all day long rejoice the soul of your servant for to you O Lord I lift up my soul for you Lord are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you Hey, perhaps tonight God is saying to you, and I'm not saying that it's because you're a Pharisee. Maybe it's you're one of the confused people in the midst of Levi's dinner there and you're just beginning to learn the ways of God as they were in the midst of that moment. Jesus was capitalizing and giving a lesson for all. And maybe God would say, listen, I want you to go and learn the heart of God. And the heart of God is mercy. Go and learn about my mercy. Understand my mercy and by faith receive my mercy. Receive my mercy. By faith, believe for yourself, God, yes, I, but you're a merciful God. And so, God, I receive your mercy. I need your mercy. And, and I, I, Lord, I thankfully, appreciatively, I embrace your mercy by faith and gratitude and acceptance. And, Lord, that is more pleasing to you than saying, Lord, here's another sacrifice. Here's another thing I can bring to the table. He says, no, learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Hosea 6, 6, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. More than God wants a burnt offering and religious duty, God says, I just want you to have a better knowledge of who I am. I just want you to know me better and know that I'm a God of mercy because that will benefit you and that will also benefit the way that we treat other people. 
Because like the Pharisees, we will render more mercy to people and less judgment and criticism and sin sniffing and always wanting to point out the mistakes and the failures and the flaws that we see in each other's lives all the time. It will make us a lot more merciful to the unsaved world and really a lot more merciful to our family, to the body of Christ and to all those we're with. So Jesus says here in conclusion, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, the Bible says no one is righteous, no, not one. So when Jesus said I didn't come to call the righteous, he wasn't saying there are righteous people because there's nobody righteous. He's inferring the self-righteous. Again, remember the concept from back in verse 12? Those who are well, they don't need a physician. People who are healthy or just think they're healthy and ignore the fact of the symptoms of their cancer because they don't want to address it. And they so I don't need a doctor. And some people are like that spiritually. They deny or they're just oblivious to their spiritual condition. And so they're self-righteous in their attitude. They think they're fine. They don't need anything. They're okay how they are. So Jesus says, those aren't the kind of people I came to call. I didn't come for people who are self-righteous. I didn't come for people who think that they have it all together, that they've got it all together, they're fine, they don't need God, they don't need help, that their life is just okay, and they're a good enough person from their perspective. They're good enough. They're healthy enough. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the self-righteous. He said, what I came for was sinners. I came for people who know that they're spiritually sick, morally ill, unhealthy to the core of their soul, people who realize they sin, they fall short, they fail every day. And Jesus said, those who are sick and know they need my help, that's who I came to call. And I want you to notice, he said, I came to call sinners to repentance. And let me just say apologetically, not that I'm one to hound on or beat up on translations, that is in the manuscript, and if your translation doesn't have to repentance, you got ripped off there. Jesus didn't just come to call sinners. Hey, if you're a sinner, come on. Are you a sinner? Come on. Are you a sinner? Come on. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance because that's part of the remedy to get healthy spiritually is to repent of sin and receive the forgiveness and the restoration and follow Jesus Christ. So look, part of the remedy, yes, Jesus is merciful, but part of the remedy for spiritual health involves repentance. It's letting Jesus as the great physician bring a, a, a surgical procedure to your heart or maybe to cut the cancerous thing out of your life and eradicate it from your life before it defiles and destroys you. That's repentance change of life, change of lifestyle. And that's part of the remedy of becoming healthy with Jesus Christ as our great physician. You know, such a beautiful thing here. Jesus is the ultimate physician and doctor. The ultimate physician and doctor. I want you to think about this tonight in regards to Jesus. His diagnosis is always perfectly accurate. Is that not so true? A lot of times my diagnosis of myself isn't very accurate, whether I'm harder on myself than I should be, or I don't really recognize the reality of my true... His diagnosis is always spot on. When he gives us a diagnosis of our heart condition, it's always perfectly accurate. Secondly, his prescription for our healing always works. Now that's a lot more wonderful than a lot of the scripts that we get written for us. Physically, Jesus' prescription for our healing, whatever it is, it always works. Listen, do it his way. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's repentance of sin. 
It's choosing to pick up your cross and follow Jesus and not say, well, I, I have a condition. No, you're a sinner. You just have to repent and receive Christ and embrace the power of the Holy Spirit and accept by faith you're forgiven. Let it go. You're washed. Walk in the newness of Christ. Obey and follow the Lord as that new creation. And this is one of the greatest parts of Jesus as a physician is as a physician, this is unlike any I've met so far, he offers all his help and services for free. He's the doctor who actually pays the bill for the patients so that he can offer us help for free to become healthy by him. And tonight, look, I'd ask you this as we enter back into a time of worship. Do you realize your need spiritually? If not, ponder that as we partake of communion. Do you really realize your need spiritually? Have you ever really thought about your need spiritually? Tonight, are you sick of the effect of sin upon your life and the effect that sin has had on your life well here's the good news Jesus has and Jesus always offers the remedy to forgive to heal to restore to renew to remove it's all available in him for free by faith and as we celebrate communion that's what we remember that's what we reflect upon to reassure our hearts. Father, we thank